Hey guys, Reed Goosens here. Now before we dive into today's show, I quickly want to tell you about some exciting things happening in 2018. Now in a few months time, I will be launching my brand spanking new book, appropriately titled Investing in the US, The Ultimate Guide to US Real Estate. And it is all the best bits from this show transformed into a book. Now, as you are all loyal listeners on this show, we are doing a pre-launch book giveaway. So what you have to do in order to participate in this pre-launch book giveaway is just shoot me an email. It's pretty simple. At info, that's I-N-F-O at readgoosens.com. And in the subject line, you can put the words Kraken book. And in return, I will shoot you back a link where you can go and pre-order your copy of my new book. Now remember, in that link, there will be an area where you can put the code Kraken, C-R-A-C-K-I-N, and that will enable you to get a discount. I wanna thank you all for tuning in. The reason why I do this show is because of my loyal listeners, and this is a way of me giving back to you guys by helping you, you can pre-order the book and get it for free before we launch in a couple of months time. All right, now back into the show. So when I, um, you know, have a raw land deal that I'm opening escrow zone and they're going to do due diligence in the city of LA, I say, make sure you talk to the planning uh, deputy for that city councilman, to the Department of Transportation, Bureau of Engineering, DWP, especially urban forestry, LA fire. I mean, you want to talk to as many departments as possible and vet your potential project to see what their feedback is. Welcome to Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate, a podcast for international investors and real estate entrepreneurs looking to break into the U.S. market. G'day, g'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the U.S. podcast from Los Angeles. I'm your host, Reed Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, I'm glad that you've all tuned in to learn from my incredible guests, and each and every one of them are the cream of the crop here in the United States when it comes to real estate investing, business investing, and entrepreneurship. Each show, I try and tease out their incredible stories of how they have successfully created their businesses here in the U.S., how they've created financial freedom, massive amounts of cash flow, and ultimately created extraordinary lives for themselves and their families. Life by design, as I like to say. Hopefully, these guests will inspire all of my cracking listeners, which are you guys, to get off the couch and go and take massive amounts of action. If these guys can do it, so can you. Now, as you know, I'm all about sharing the knowledge with my loyal listeners, which is you guys, and there's absolutely no BS on this show, just straight into the nuts and bolts. Now, if you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give us a review on iTunes, and you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching at Reed Goosens. You can find the show wherever you podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play, but you can also find these episodes up on my YouTube channel. So head over to reedgoosens.com, click on the video link, and it will take you to the video recordings of these podcasts where you can see my ugly mug, but the beautiful faces of my guests each and every week. All right, enough out of me. Let's get cracking and into today's show. Today in the show, the pleasure of speaking with Bryant Brislin. Since 2009, Bryant has been a land broker focusing on redevelopment sites throughout Los Angeles and Southern California for developers building new multifamily housing. In his career, he's completed over 100 land deals, totaling more than $200 million worth of transactional volume. Uh, really pumped and excited to have him on the show, but enough out of me. Let's get him out here. G'day, Bryant. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today, mate? Hey, I'm good. Thanks for having me. Hey, my pleasure. Um, we're talking a little bit in the green room about you know what makes you tick and all those great things about the developing here in Southern California. But today's show is really going to be centric around Southern California and, and what you're seeing. But before we dive into the nuts and bolts of today's show, do you want to tell me how you've made your first ever dollar as a kid uh, sure. and how you got involved in real estate? Yeah. Uh, first job was at Pizza Hut, like practically the day I turned 16. And I loved it. I mean, it was, I, I learned right away that if you go the extra mile, it just, it means everything to your bosses. So, you know, I would show up a half hour early and the phones would be ringing off the hook and I would just jump on the phones with my backpack still on without even clocked in yet, helping out. And just my supervisors would notice that and it would just help me run circles around 
other people. And um, it just, that still resonates today. I go the extra mile. I try to act as a concierge with the clients I work with now when it comes to my land deals. That's awesome, mate. And and so walk me through how you got involved with real estate investing and, and particularly in brokerage, because that's, you know, may, maybe explain to the listeners what you do here in Southern California. Yeah, so I, I identify uh, land throughout, uh, mainly central and greater LA and also the Inland Empire, but mostly in LA that I think is prime for redevelopment. And that's based upon zoning, uh, the current use, the history, etc. So I like to find old schools and churches and multifamily buildings, warehouses, commercial strip centers that have seen better days. And, you know, I contact the owners. A lot of times my primary seller um, demographic is our families that have owned the property for decades. And, you know, the sun's setting, the heirs are in control, whatever the case is. And they realize that the value is in the land and not the existing use. And so I help them understand what it's like to sell their land to a builder because that process can be long because it's always worth more if they give an, ex, um, an extended escrow as opposed to the as-is value you know close in 30 days if they give a year two years however long it takes to get the entitlements done you know the land is worth double let's say in a lot of cases and so that's that's kind of my average uh, type of deal I work on. And so just rewind the clock a little bit. How did you get into real estate investing? Maybe walk us through your journey from the, 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 the Pizza Hut days back when you were 16 <laughs> years old uh, to, to now. Yeah, well, oddly enough, I was uh, working on my degree in English at Cal State Fullerton. I thought I was going to be an English professor. And I had a class, um, a classmate who was going to school at night, an older lady. Um, I mean, not too old, but you know, she was. She already had her career during the day. We were co-presidents of the Shakespeare Club of all things together. And um, she said, "I really like your." Because I was doing spreadsheets and stuff for our Shakespeare Club, and she said, "I like your organizational skills. I could really use an assistant." And I said, "Oh, where do you work?" And she said, "I'm the chief title officer at Fidelity National Title, and she worked on all the big home builder accounts. That was her day job. But at night, she was getting a master's in English." So I became her assistant, um, still do, was still doing night classes in English, and it all kind of fell into place. You know, I realized I, I've always loved development. I just never knew I could get into it. I never even thought about how I would get into it. Um, but as I started working in my early 20s as a title assistant with KB Home and Lennar and DR Horton and all those types of developers, it all made sense. You know, when someone had opened a title order number, I'd actually want to go drive and kick the dirt. You know, it wasn't just another black and white type transaction for me, like how it is kind of for other people in title. So within about a year and a half or so, she actually left the company and I basically got her job. So by my mid-20s, I was running um, a title unit, working with all the major home builders and master developers um, in Southern California at the time. I also got to work on um, other types of deals and other food groups as far as uh, ground up hospitality and commercial and industrial. Um, I did that for about seven years, 2001 to 2008. And then that's, when the world, yeah. That's awesome. That's, 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 just, yeah. just, just to stop you there, I don't want to yeah. dive in, but you, so you were, you were studying English and just through, and, and what were you doing? You're doing it, you said you're doing night school. So what were you doing throughout the day? To, to, to I, had, I had a job at, at a large insurance company, basically like a claims adjuster. Interesting, interesting. Yeah. And you just happened to meet this lady who, who yeah. was, he was, he was also, also studying English in the Shakespeare Club. Yeah. Uh, and she happened to be in real estate. That's incredible. Sure. Yeah. It's very funny the way it worked out. So That's awesome. That's awesome. But I, we keep, keep going. So, so you worked, you went and worked with Lennar Builders. Is that who you worked with? Oh, no. So, well, they were, as a title officer, I was doing title for all those large home builders, all the publics and all the large regional privates and mastered, you know, SunCal at the time, they were the largest master developer in the Western region. And they were my main client that took up half my day. They had multiple master plan communities all over the place. Um, so I did that for about seven years. And I learned a lot um, as far as technical expertise when it comes to um, not just title, but Lehman Brothers was their partner. So there was a lot of cross collateralizations and whatnot. So I learned a lot about um, debt and equity and, and how that all worked because I was helping to underwrite all that for you know, transactions in the hundreds of millions of dollars that needed title insurance. 
That's incredible. And, that, and that's, that's such a way that you can get involved and you had no prior experience with any of this stuff pr- before Correct. getting into it, right? So you, you, you study English and you just fell, excuse my language, ass over backwards into real Seriously. estate. That's, yeah. that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, and I didn't have that much techno, technical expertise when it came to title and for a while, but I, just, I was responsive and I had follow through and really it got me really far. Well, it's, it goes back to what you were saying earlier about being being willing to you know work hard and and be persistent i think that's really the key for, yeah. for what i'm just taking uh, getting away right now with what you're, what you're telling me but sure. i guess it's for all those people listening right now it just shows that you don't have to have years and years of experience to be uh, as successful as you, as you have been in the real estate development space you know locally here in, in california um, but that's yeah you know man kudos to you that's that's a really incredible story because you know anyone it, it shows that anyone can just do it you know including uh, an english major but it, you, sure. know, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't have thought right <laughs> no no never would have thought and yeah i mean most of the people i work with now have mreds and they all went to stanford and sc and you know wherever harvard some of them and you know english degree from cal state fullerton but they're all coming to me for land deals so i figured out a niche that works for me that's awesome so so let's let's talk about the seven years you spent in the, I guess, the title world where yeah. you took over that lady's job, um, it, what you obviously you developed a, a, a repertoire of tools and skills to help you morph into what you're doing today. Do you want to yes. talk a little bit about that and how you made that transition to essentially you're working for yourself right now or do you work for, for someone else? I do essentially work for myself. I mean, I hang my license at a brokerage and I love the brokerage and it's uh, there. It's called the Hoffman company. They're very well known in the home building community. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am a 1099, you know, self-employed commission only guy. Right. Um, but right. their brand helps me a lot and um, they're very respected in the community. So basically after seven years in the title world, you know, they wanted to keep me, but at a fraction of what I was making, which was typical for everyone, you know, it was, it was bad times. So I thought, you know what? why don't I do something a little more entrepreneurial? I've always been kind of a closet deal junkie. Like how can I convert that to something else? So luckily the land brokerage opportunity came along. And in 2009, I moved to the Hoffman company and, you know, almost everyone at the brokerage focused more on the Inland Empire and the more secondary and tertiary markets, you know, from the Antelope Valley, Palmdale, Lancaster to Vegas, to Coachella Valley, to the 15 corridor they didn't really have like an LA guy and, and not many brokerages did. But ever since my early 20s, I've always been intrigued with what's the difference between Eagle Rock and Torrance and Van Nuys and El Sereno and, you know, Brentwood and Bel Air. And for whatever reason, that always has intrigued me and I've always spent time driving around exploring those areas. So I figured out I could create a niche in my business of, of being a specialist in that. So as far as tools from title, um, you know, when I'm looking at a property and trying to figure out who do I speak to, a lot of times I pull the title chain and I review the documents, anything that's recorded, memorandums, deeds of trust, et cetera, because sometimes the grant deed doesn't give you all the information. So um, that information has helped me a lot in really figuring out who the actual players are. Sometimes, you know, the attorney's name is, is on there. I contact the attorney if I can't get a hold of the seller. Um, stuff like that. And also in, in closing land deals, you know, old easements come up and people say, oh, this easement is, is, is a major problem. And I'll say, well, why don't you ask for a 103.1 endorsement? That's an endorsement where they, you know, I mean, so the title background does come into play a lot. That's interesting. You, you obviously said a lot of stuff that some people may not have quite grasped their head around. But, but sure. essentially what you're saying is that you became a land broker. And, it, and when people think of land, it's not just tracks of land like i, I assume that you're you're looking at really highest and best use sort of stuff like there's usually an existing use to yep. me land is anything that's one story got it got it got it got it and when you it look at LA. And, and you look at stuff that it's saying well hang on this is a you know a single family but you could actually build 10 units on this property because it's yes. not the highest and best use correct exactly mm-hmm. I, and I, I i love this topic because i obviously i'm a structural engineer i've spent a lot of time with the city of you know getting stuff approved through the city of la through the city of long beach and you know be looking at a, at a property and seeing the highest and best use value is really, really, it's a value in which you can provide to other people because the layman investor may not necessarily see the untouched yeah. possibility yeah. by just looking at some house and thinking, oh, that's just a single family house. I, got, no, I can't do anything with it. There's right? a vision and an intuition that kind right. of come into play that I always kind of assume everyone else has. And 
and not, I, I've realized not everyone has it. So luckily <laughs> that's, that's a, I don't have that many gifts. I'm not the best at running numbers. I've, my partner is amazing at it. Thank God. Um, but I do have the vision and I do understand, um, these emerging markets like, you know, yeah. San Pedro and Glissel Park and all these different areas. So I want to, let's, let's take a, let's get into the nuts and bolts a little bit, but let's do it a little bit methodically. So you talk about emerging markets and we're going to get into what, what you, what makes an emerging market, particularly in a hot market like Southern California, because a lot of people think, and, I, and I'm going a little bit off a tangent, but a lot of people think, oh, Southern California is expensive. It's hard to make money, blah, blah, blah. Let's put that to one side for a second and, and just, just assume um, we're going to get into that. But from a just an average zoning point of view, and, and the reason I bring up zoning, because zo- that is exactly what highest and best use means. And to understand the vision, you need to understand the zoning, right? So how did you learn that zoning? And maybe do you want to just break it down for a few people who, who are layman's listening to the show and saying, well, what the hell does he mean by R1 or R2 or C1 or C2? <laughs> well, I just learned pretty quickly that RD 1.5 um, and R3 and RD2 and C2 are kind of the most ideal um, for me. And, you know, one of the reasons, another good reason why LA is, is my favorite sandbox is because um, it's one big sandbox, as opposed to if you go from Tustin to San Juan Capistrano to Carson, you know, to Whittier, these are all areas that have their own completely different, you know, zoning codes and general plan. Uh, designations, but in LA from Selmar all the way to the northwest, all the way down to San Pedro, it's all kind of the same. And there's a website that the city has called Zemus, which um, if you look it up, it's like the old fashioned beer from the 80s or whatever, Zemus LA. I mean, you can look up any property and not only see what the zoning is, but who the city councilman is. They have the building uh, footprints overlaid over the parcels. I mean, it's, it's a great tool. I mean, there's a lot of things about the city of LA that are very tough to get things done, but Zemus is a great tool. That's awesome. And, and, and talk to me about a little bit of that zoning. But let's, let's dive a little bit deeper. You said RD 1.5 and you, 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 you ramble off a bunch of numbers, but sure. how does, how do, how would one know if they looked at a property and said, well, what is this zoning and what can I build on this, on this, on this lot? Well, you would use that ZMS website and you enter the address or the assessor's parcel number and it will show what the zoning is. So if it's RD 1.5, that means for every dwelling unit, there has to be a minimum um, square footage of 1,500 square feet of land per dwelling unit. Got it, got it. So um, for everyone who... So it took, because and I'm going to get real technical now because I, I, I've got into... I've looked at R4 lots and R3 lots. And so what... Uh, uh, Bryant was just explaining was that now that Bryant people may think well fifteen hundred that's not on fifteen hundred on the on the gross square footage of of the dirt it's on a it's got setback requirements as well am I not am I correct Yeah yeah so you'd never want to um, you can do a simple area calculation so if you have thirty thousand square feet and you divide it by fifteen hundred that will yield a certain amount of units but that's that's just a very simple area calculation because you're right you do have to take into account potential uh, setbacks or dedications and just you need circulation in general so if the simple area calculation is 20 a lot of times you might want to say well maybe this is more like 15 units you know if you're looking yeah. at small lots or something like that right right and then that's, a, that's and that's a good point because the, the viability given, and uh, we'll get into this in a, in a minute, about the, the, the cost of land, the cost of construction, is that when you're, when you're penciling, like when you're underwriting a deal, and if you could build 20 units, you know, you might underwrite the deal saying, oh, well, this is a 30,000 square foot lot and I can put 20 units on it. Um, or is that, well, in reality, with all the setbacks, you may only be able to put 15. The deal may not pencil as better as what it did at 20. So Correct. it's just something yeah. for, for someone to well, out there. And it even know. goes deeper than that. I mean, you could right. go to the neighborhood council or the planning commission and say, you know what, we really, where's your guest parking? We really, really want guest parking. And and there's this small lot ordinance sets us out too. And that's something, you know, that's for a deeper dive, you know, someone's working on a deal, but sometimes you need to have areas for guest parking, open space, trash enclosures. So there is a lot to take into account. Yep, yep. So by in general, your the, the, what would be sort of the, the top two or three things that you could tell the audience about when someone's doing a drive by a house, if they see a single family on a large lot, 
Mm-hmm. Should, should, should alarm bells be going off and saying, look, potential, potential, potential. There's highest and best use here because this is clearly a large lot and there's, there's only a, single, a small single family on it. What, what, are, what are sort of your tips there? Well, um, you'd want to find out the zoning like we're talking about. And, you know, even if you're in Norwalk, for example, you know, Norwalk obviously doesn't have Zemus. That's independent to, um, to count to LA, but you would go on the website, pull up the zoning map for the city and look to see what the zoning is and figure it out. And a lot of times the zoning isn't always what you'd like it to be. It's not like R3, you know, which R3 is a more dense type zoning um, that you would use for townhomes. Um, but you always want to call the counter or even go to the counter for the planning department and say, how viable is a zone change here? Or a lot of times if you ask them what's going on in the area, they'll say, oh, we're actually already working on a specific plan over there, or there's a new overlay or something like that. Interesting. And you, you bring up some good points there that first and foremost, you know, if, if people listening to the show are thinking about doing any ground up construction, regardless of where you are in the United States, you know, uh, I will, I'll be the first to um, speak up and say, the, particularly here in LA, the fact that you can walk into a counter and talk to a, someone over the counter about, you know, a potential deal and how many units you fit on it and all that sort of stuff and have a face-to-face and they're very open about, you know, what you can and can't do. You, you wouldn't be able to get that in Australia. And, and so, um, you, you, you have the if you've got the resources to walk into the you know you're talking very much about Norwalk or, or Long Beach or LA County or whatever it might be and you know we're obviously talking about Southern California but if you're in other parts of the country and you you, you have you do see a large bit of land with uh, or, or a, in, a, in an urban area with a small house on it and you think you could build more go on and, and have a chat with with the local city council because they're pretty open, right? When you know they're with the planning uh, department, yeah. And planning or, department, sorry, yeah. And or if you're working with a, a civil engineer and architect, they may know as well. But um, you know that costs some dollars. So yeah, right. you yourself can always do the research online and or talk to the counter. And not everything's as black and white as it seems. Like I said, they may say, "Oh, actually, we you know the council there's political will there to see denser housing. We're working on a, a on our new zoning codes or whatever." Um, you know, in the city of LA now, Measure JJJ has kind of killed zone changes. But, and what's um, JJJ, just to, for those people who might not understand? Measure JJJ passed about two years ago, and it says that if you do a zone change for anything over 10 units, that you have to use union labor. So now your costs go up a huge amount, even if you're only doing a 10 lot deal, and you have to have an affordable component. So that's basically kind of killed zone changes, and that's a problem because in most parts of LA, they haven't updated the general plan in about 30 years. So, for example, um, Cal State Northridge, which is a great submarket, the Northridge area, you know, you have land that's one block away from there on corridors that is still zoned like minimum half acre per dwelling unit. So it's got a more rural type zoning. So, I mean, they're working on updating their plans. You know, it's a priority of Garcetti's supposedly, but, you know, years are going by. And so that's why everyone's focused on what's called TOC now, which is the incentive to build uh, very dense apartments in areas that are near transit because they can't do zone changes anymore in other other areas. So, and and you bring up a very good point, and and that is when you're looking at a deal, and how hard is it to go just to keep layman's terms? I I see an RD one point five lot, and I think I but I want to change it to an R two or an R three. You're you're saying yeah. it's pretty difficult in yes. Southern California, and, and no, in in the city of LA, it is in the city of LA. Yeah, yeah. And, and so the and what, the advice I give people when they're looking at ground up construction is that ground up construction, just from a thirty thousand foot level is the most riskiest thing when it comes to real estate. Now, it can become less risky when you're talking to experts like yourself, Bryant, but in general, try and stick with non-zoning change-related lots. Look for the highest and best use, which means if you see a single-family house on an R3 lot, then you, 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 you buy right, you can build more units on there. You don't have to go through all the hoops of, of rezoning, correct, Brian? And, yeah, and, and, and if you if you choose the areas that you want to work in and get to those areas, so if you choose Whittier, call Whittier, talk to them and say, what have you got going on? They say, actually, we're working on a general plan amendment because when they work on these specific plans or, or GPA, you know, uh, overlays, et cetera, I mean, it takes some years. So if you call and find out that they're working on it and you find out where it is, you can start to kind of work on those parcels, tie them up, close them if there's an existing um, use it can cash flow for you while you're waiting for the zoning to uh, to change so I mean there's right. a lot of motion in, in many cities 
Right. And, and one thing I want to add is that you yourself, Bright, you've had many, many years of doing this and understanding the different local codes. Uh, you are, There's obviously services like like people like yourself who are out there that help developers you know, navigate the weeds of zoning. So do you help, you know, the, the, the avid investor understand the risks of, you know, getting through zoning and, and if you can actually go and build a certain, you know, piece uh, of property on a certain piece of land? I give them the basic info. I mean, I really am just a broker at the end of the day. Right. Some of them have in-house project managers. Some of them have consultants that they use. Um, you know, to take the finish line. But I have seen where people have stubbed their toes over the years. So when I, um, you know, have a raw land deal that I'm opening escrow zone and they're going to do due diligence in the city of LA, I say, make sure you talk to the planning uh, deputy for that city councilman, to the Department of Transportation, Bureau of Engineering, DWP, especially urban forestry, LA fire. I mean, you want to talk to as many departments as possible and vet your potential project to see what their feedback is. That's 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 really good advice and and something that you know it's part of due diligence. If you're going to go down the bland, the, the path of of redevelopment, you know there's just a lot more things to understand. Hence why it's a lot more riskier. Not that you can't do it, and there's not a lot of successful developers who do it. You just need your team around you. Um, but Brian, you said you made some point earlier, which was quite interesting. That I personally noticed being an Australian, uh, moving to the United States, being a structural engineer, you know, seeing. Uh, you use the word TOC, or it could be TOC or TOD, uh, transported oriented design. In Australia, when I first got involved in, in, in real estate and, 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 and being a civil engineer, TOD is just a natural thing. Like it's if you're building a train line, you know, you want to be in an, you want to be a suburb in and around that house prices. If they build a train line, the house prices are going to go up around that suburb. If there's a train stop there, it's just that's what I'm used to. I come from that world, and so it was, it's very interesting to see. You know, when I come here to LA, that places in and around train lines, particularly like the exposition line or something like that here in LA, they're a little bit more up and coming. And I know that's through uh, affordable housing, but and it's it's sort of taken in my layman's viewpoint on it a little bit of time for people to grasp onto this TOD aspect and not just build highways into the middle of nowhere and plonk a suburb (laughs) because traffic's becoming unsustainable. Would you have any comments on that? Well, it's actually the tenant unions and the NIMBYs, the anti-development people that are causing major problems. So for example, mm-hmm. um, God, is he a senator? I'm not sure, but um, Weiner, a Weiner from San Francisco. I mean, he right. had a proposed legislation for areas like the Expo Line to automatically have very dense new housing to change the zoning. But the problem is the tenant unions and the NIMBYs, they don't want any older housing that's quote unquote affordable to be demolished, even though it's underutilized land. And we have the mm-hmm. same problem in Silver Lake. We have the same problem in Valley Village, Tuluka Lake, those areas where you have an old duplex and you you take two or three of these duplexes, cluster them together. Technically, you could demo it and put in, let's say, 15, 20 units or, or more. But then the people come out and fight and say, no, we don't want six people to be displaced, even though 20 new families can move in once it's redeveloped. Right, And they right. have a lot of power. No, you bring up a good point, and that's look. It's it's the the fine line between a lot of population versus you know urban development and 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 places gentrifying. And there's a lot of on both sides of the coin. There's a lot of people up in arms about. Uh, I know just recently in the the, the midterm elections. Um, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. There was prop a proposition 10. prop ten. Prop ten did not pass, which was correct. you know, and just just explain those people. What, what was prop ten, and what what would that have done to development here in Los Angeles? Prop ten basically uh, would allow the Costa Hawkins. Um, oh boy, I'm I'm blanking here for a second, but basically it would have allowed each city and jurisdiction to um, consider having rent control beyond what Costa Hawkins limited it to. Costa Hawkins limited it to being only multifamily built before 1978 and not single family. And so now it would have been like any multifamily and also single family. And what's even scarier is something called vacancy control, meaning that um, if you buy a multifamily building and the tenant leaves or you have them leave, you, even if you renovate it, you can't reset the, the unit to current market rate. So, you know, all of us out there that do value-add rehabs and multifamily, there's no incentive to do that if you can't reset it to market. 
And also for single family and condos, if they have rent control there, you know, if you move out of your single family and decide you want to move back years later, you can't even have the tenant leave out of your own home. Um, it, it was going to be a problem and all the large apartment REITs and even the smaller guys were very concerned um, to have these types of limitations. It did fail, but you know, the tenant, I, I monitor and I follow all the tenant unions and NIMBYs and all their social media. I mean, the, the next day they were in Blackstone's lobby in Santa Monica protesting and trespassing and some of them got arrested because Blackstone was a major contributor to the No on Prop 10 campaign. And um, Blackstone owns tons of single families that they have as rentals. And um, these groups are, are very strong, but there is a growing YIMBY movement, yes, in my backyard. Um, I think we might get to a tipping point at some point with them, but who knows? But um, these tenant unions are really um, causing problems. I mean, they're taking caravans to the owners of, of uh, to the actual single family residences or houses of the owners that want to, you know, legally evict them so they can build something bigger and, and protesting and screaming and yelling and swearing. And, and I mean, they're just getting vicious and they're very galvanized now with social media. So, so what's your thought on how you solve that? Like, cause there's, again, what I said before, there's a lot of um, issues on, on both sides of the fence. How do how do you, in your opinion, how do we tackle this 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 problem of affordable housing versus continued development and, and revitalization? Well, I mean, frankly, I don't know if you can. That's why I personally am, am starting to rehab properties on my own, and I think I'd rather be a landlord than a broker for the rest of my life. But um, what I do is I try to explain to my friends because you know I have a lot of friends that are lay people that don't get it. They think, oh, rent control, that sounds great. And they also see any new development and say, no, all this new development's all luxury. How does that help anything? And I try to explain to them. And if we have conversations with them, and some of them, they see the light. But I explain to them, if a brand new A-grade a building gets built in Silver Lake or wherever, you want people to move into that because the people that can qualify and to move into something like that, if a couple from Venice, a tech couple from Venice decides, oh, we want the East Side lifestyle, we want to live in Highland Park, Echo Park, or they're going to live wherever they can. So you want them to move into a brand new apartment complex because guess what? If they can't, they're going to be competing with a blue collar person or someone who makes less money for some random fourplex on a side street and they're going to run circles around them. They're going to have better credit. They're going to have first and last month's rent, you know, better W-2s, et cetera. So, um, you know, those new quote unquote luxury buildings that everyone hates, they siphon off uh, the people that would, who will compete for the B and C grade product, the old craftsmen or the old triplex or whatever that the more normal people that only make 50,000 a year or whatever can afford. That's the only thing they can afford. I mean, that's one way I try to explain it. But, um, you know, some people just have this vicious thing where they just hate developers and landlords and, and investors. And honestly, I think it's a jealousy thing because I think not everyone wants a hair salon or a hot dog stand or whatever, but I think if, if anyone had the chance, they would be a landlord or they would design a home or, or whatever and build it. And um, I don't know, not trying to get too... No, it's very, it's very interesting because it's, it's such a dichotomy of how do you, how do you balance both? And, and I, I, I don't think we're going to have the answers on this. The show is only for 45 minutes. Yeah. But, you know, we, 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 could, we could spend hours discussing it and, and how you policy making and all that sort well, of stuff. Well, Gavin Newsom's can... working on it, supposedly. So, <laughs> I mean, he's the new governor. And I mean, seriously, I'm, I'm hoping he, he, I mean, he says he, he has some pretty lofty goals. When That's it comes awesome. to housing, so hopefully there will be some change because we yeah. probably do need state level or even federal intervention because the cities are not building anywhere near what they should be. And, and you bring up a good segue into uh, into so we've got this 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 struggle for you know redeveloping properties. Um, people are obviously want want rent control. The cost of house, cost of living, and cost of housing is going up in a in a in a what I call a tier one market like Los Angeles. Um, but on the other side of the coin, what's also going up is construction. And we in the green room before we started here on, on the show, we spoke a little bit about like um, the cost of construction. And what are you seeing uh, with the cost of land going up, the cost of construction? 
a, a lot of developers pressing pause um, right now because of you know the uncertainty and the interest rates and and the geopolitical situation here in the United yeah. States. Like, what what are you seeing as a broker and, and from a volume transactional point of view? So, you know, construction costs going up have been a problem for at least three years now, at least I, I would say. And everyone's kind of dealing with it. And then, you know, sellers kind of having these stratospheric type expectations for the land has also been a problem for a while. But everyone's just kind of always trying to meet in the middle and somehow we get deals done. But when you add that on, on top of that now, interest rates going up as much as they have, um, that has kind of all kind of accumulated to cause problems. So in the summer, things really started to slow down. And, you know, in August, we were all saying, well, maybe, you know, everyone's making money. Everyone seems to be taking two or three vacations now. And in the summer, maybe things will pick up. And then the fall came and the fall things didn't really pick up that great. When I say slow down, I'm talking about home um, absorption rates or new home sales momentum at new communities, both at the, in the Inland Empire and also in kind of central and greater L.A. Um, and then we got into the fall and things continued to, to stay slow. And when you talk to these agents who sell new homes, they tell you it's definitely interest rates are the big problem. So the large builders that I work with, the publics, and also the more regional kind of medium-sized builders, I think if they all had it their way, they would wait until March to close or go hard on a deal right now. Um, because kind of post-Super Bowl is actually traditionally when the home buying season picks up. And so we're hoping by then that what has been going on in the last few months is more of a correction period as opposed to the beginning of a full-on downturn. Um, because fundamentally, everything else in the economy or a lot of other things seem to be great, seems like, for the most part. Um, I mean, I know the market's been kind of tumultuous with the stock market, stock market, but in general, you know, unemployment and all those other things that people look at. Um, so we're hoping that February, March, approximately, that people will kind of be used to you know, what interest rates are now, even though I know they're supposed to go up even more, but, um, and start buying homes again. It's actually the homes that are kind of in that 800 to like $1.2 million range, which is very common in um, both in Irvine and in, you know, because you know, in Irvine, we have four different master plan communities at least. So we have, you know, a lot of uh, metrics there to look at. Also in LA though, I mean, those home prices of or home sales have really slowed down in those price ranges. And that's of course, because, you know, the, the mortgage payment on something that's a million dollars, if your interest rate goes up a point, I mean, that's a large amount of your payment going up. Right. No, it's, 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 incre it's, it's incredible that you're seeing sort of an, a ceiling, right. And, and people, the when is, as interest rates rise, the affordability is also massive on a, a new home buyer or or even a developer um, or a person who's trying to get a deal done. You know, it sort of affects everything in terms of the decisions of how development is moving and progressing forward. Um, so you, you, you sort of mentioned that it, it, it's a maybe, a, hopefully it's an easing rather than a, a, a beginning of a correction. But I have heard murmurs that, you know, um, so things are starting to soften a little bit here in LA. I don't know if it's yeah. again what you said. You know, it's fall coming into the fall season. Uh, well, you know, autumn as as everyone outside the United States calls it. But it's it's just starting to ease up a little bit and and trying to as you said, if you deal if people could get deals done or pencil them in for March next year, they probably would. But uh, you know, you got to keep got to keep food on the table, right? <laughs> yeah, and it's not like no one's doing not doing anything. I mean, I have buyers, but you know, let's say I would have been able to sell a 10 lot track in Northeast LA. So Atwater Village, you know, Eagle Rock, wherever a year ago, nine months ago for 300,000 a lot. Now I can probably sell it for about 250,000 a lot because people want to be super careful between mm. construction cost and just the market in general. Interesting. That's, that's a good, that's a good metric. I think. So you, What's scary is when no one wants to buy anything. <laughs> Well, you, you, you so, may be faced with that sooner rather than later if interest rates yeah. keep going up. Yeah, yeah. Because one of the big things that we, you know, we're talking about at both sides of the coin here is that the holding costs when you come into construction and uh, getting through entitlements can take a, a long period of time. And so, you know, you can't, it's very difficult to get fixed rate debt on a property at a, at a reasonable rate. Um, 
that that people are not willing to to take the the risk, right? And so you know when you've got um, issues with, well, can I get through entitlement? Okay, I think I'm confident I can get through entitlement. Can I get through construction? There's you know risks of scheduling and construction risk, and then then you know how quickly is it going to sell on the back end? Those are things that comes into developers' minds as as they look at new and new deals to get penciling in, and as interest rates keep going up, it's I see it right, like and the cost of construction, right? Like I I know I was I was pricing something out about a year ago. And um, you know, cost of construction is up four or five percent across you know the last twelve months, which is crazy. Have you seen that side of it go up as well? That that GCs are really uh, jamming developers yes. for um for, for costs. Yeah, especially if you have a smaller project, you know, because they could. There's a fifty unit apartment project down the street somewhere they could work on, as opposed to your eight unit small lot project. So that's a problem. I have heard that numbers come down, so I guess that helps a little bit. And I guess if we do go into a downturn at some point, you know, construction costs should go down and and whatnot. I mean, I know there's other problems to deal with if we're going to downturn, but at some point it's got to cool off, you would think. And also, I'm just waiting for some disruption. You know, there's folks out there working on robotic construction for prefab and modular and storage containers and all that. I mean, we just need some major disruption because whether or not construction costs are high, some of these projects take a year and a half, two years to build. And maybe they don't have the best, you know, construction management going on in some of these that take that long, but it just takes forever to build these things. It does. And then also the waste, like I, I've been involved in some stick frame construction down in Long Beach and just how much waste comes off the side. It's just, it's unsustainable, yeah. you know? Um, and one of the big things I noticed when I first moved from the West Coast, uh, sorry, from the East Coast to the West Coast, that everything here in LA is built in sti- in, in, in wood, you know, majority of stuff over on the East Coast, it's more um, steel with uh, concrete and stuff like that. And I think it's also the labor pool um, has an issue with... Uh, Sure. You know, skilled labor. You know, is a yep. lot more people in, in in wood construction than there are in steel and concrete. Yep. Um, but it also, got, I, I completely agree with you. I think we should have a whole episode on on modular housing because I think that is where how technology is going to disrupt the development industry here. You know, in, in as as deals getting harder to, to to find, that you know, costs of construction is going up. Something's got to give, right? And and it's uh, I, I'm very interested in that space because um, I think some of the construction world is very archaic and needs to be brought into the the 21st century. Yeah. We're a dinosaur compared to almost every other industry. So we're we're waiting for it and I'm sure it's coming. I know Silicon Valley is working on it. So in other areas. Well, Brian, look, man, we could, I could be talking to you all day, but I know we've, I've got to be respectful of your time. But, yeah. um, you know, uh, I, at the end of the show, I always like to ask my guests to get into their top five investing tips. Ready to do it? Sure. All right, mate. What is the daily habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? Lately, it's been time blocking. And I've gotten mm. that just from listening to other podcasts, you know, because I just otherwise, if I don't, the whole day goes by and I didn't work on what I wanted to go on. And I would also say swallowing the frog, which I think is mm-hmm. a phrase from, God, was it like a Carnegie, Carnegie book or you know, <laughs> highly effective habits of how, you know, however many swallowing people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, just the thing that I don't want to do the most, I try to do first in the morning. And yep. um, it helps a lot. And just just blocking off, you know, time for certain things and not working on anything else once that time comes. Are you a big, uh, you know, uh, writing to-do lists and, and, and scheduling stuff with time blocking? I, I assume you'd have uh, writing it down or, or yeah. doing it on your calendar. Just, making sure uh, doing you're that making... Outlook. So I'll put right, 1 to yeah. 2 p.m., market this property, 2 to 3 p.m., you know, write this marketing strategy, proposal, things like that. Awesome, awesome. Who's been the most influential person in your career to date? Maybe we already spoke about it earlier in the show. <laughs> Honestly, Robert Kiyosaki. Okay. I am obsessed and I, I really wish I could say some obscure random person, but the Rich Dad, Poor Dad author, I mean, he completely changed my way of thinking about a year and a half ago and you combine that with the Bigger Pockets podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it just has totally, you know, passive income and you combining that with depreciation. I mean that's the way to go. So yep. that's kind of my my goal. That's yeah. Look, this show, my show, I talk a lot about about Robert Kiyosaki and Rich Dad Poor Dad because that's how I got started back in two thousand and nine when I picked up that book. It's it definitely is a game changer and, and and changes the way you think about your approach life and how your income is associated with uh, 
and your wealth is associated with income and you don't have to always tied to a day job, which yeah. is uh, that, that sort of quadrant about employee, self-employed, you know, business owner, investor. It's just, it's an incredible way of, of looking at uh, d- different, different things. He delivers the message. Well, I think that's the other thing. So he's he just, does. he's very he does. relatable. He's kind he of does. like that uncle or dad or you know, <laughs> grandpa that you wish you had that yep. would have told, I wish I would have known when I was 20, buy a duplex as soon as you can. Yep. The, the problem, the, the only problem is he he, does, he tells you the why, but not necessarily much about the how to go do it, right? You've got to go figure that out a little bit, bit on yep. your own. But, 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 you know, it gets you started, gets the ball rolling. So, um, so mate, what's been, what is the most influential tool in your business, whether it be hardware or software related? Gosh, this is going to sound so simple. Um, well, I was going to say Excel, but you know what? LinkedIn. Hmm. Okay. I was an early adopter of LinkedIn. I mean, I was on it in like 2007 and I remember adding people and, and they were like, well, it just seemed weird. But I mean, I use it now all throughout the day. I mean, if I think of any, if I, if right now we're trying to market, let's say an adaptive reuse of a hotel, I could think of all the brands of hotels that I know that are more luxury, like, you know, luxury, let's say joy, however you say it, joy de vivir, joy, joie de vivir. I don't know how to say that, but you know, they have the vice, um, a lot of Saguaro and a lot of those nice ones, Ace Hotels, you know, you think of all those different brands, Citizen M. If I put in the name of the company and acquisition, I'll be able to see who does their acquisitions. And that's the same for in industrial and, you know, for KB Home. I mean, you just put in the company name and acquisition and a bunch of people will come up. I that's been amazing. <laughs> so, and then, you know, you message them. The other thing is, is if you, let's say there's someone that you really admire that you follow, that's kind of a big deal person. And normally if you were to email them or call them out of nowhere, it'd, it'd be a little bit tougher to get a hold of them. But if you think about it, they post things, some of them on LinkedIn and not everyone likes their post. It's not as common. So like you, you might be one of five people that likes your post. So if you like all their posts after a while, they get to know you and then you start to comment and then they start to engage with you. Yep. Social media, baby. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, just LinkedIn's been an amazing tool. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, Brian, what's been the biggest failure in your career to date and what did you learn from that failure? So my biggest failure, I would, I would say, is working on smaller properties. You know, I'm, I'm kind of a people pleaser. I've gotten better about that. Um, but over the years, I've met a lot of, you know, kind of nice grandpa and grandpa Johnson types who have a piece of land that only yields four homes, let's say. And those end up being the ones that take 80 hours. You know, I closed a deal that was almost $40 million in Inglewood last year. That's going to be about 225 new homes. It's an old hospital. I mean, I spent maybe a handful of hours on that. But, you know, these smaller deals, I want to help people out. But I've realized over the years, it's just not worth the time. And there's other, there's a handful of other people out there I could refer them to. Um, It doesn't make sense for me to work at a brokerage that, you know, is very well known with home builders. And I give them a decent amount of my commission compared to like a, you know, Keller Williams or whatever because of the name. So why pay so much of my commission to such a well-known brokerage in the home building community where I have access to all these big home builders and then work on a four lot deal? I should only be working on bigger deals and I have the expertise to do that. And I've, and I have worked on many large deals, but I'm just saying I've also worked on a lot of small deals because I want to help everyone in the world. (laughs) <laughs> so, you know, and I don't have kids, you know, so I'm like, okay, great. I guess I'll spend six hours on Sunday trying to help, you know, grandma and grandpa sell this. But hey, it could, it could be, it could be uh, your segue into the market, becoming your own developer, right? Like doing those smaller deals help you, help you get your feet wet as a, as an investor. It, it did. Um, and in the beginning, I told myself, this is how I'll build my track record. And that's how I got to a hundred deals. But um, after a while, I should have probably cut it off. And now I'm a lot better about pass, you know, politely passing. Yep. But um, I worked on, and also Hillside, I probably wouldn't work on as many Hillside deals as I have. They're 10 times yeah. the amount of work for for the same commission amount. So, And for those people who don't, when you say Hillside, because of, I'm assuming because of seismic activity here in LA. No, because of the, they're so challenging to sell, you know, uh-huh. I mean, okay. it's one okay. thing if you have some grade and like, let's say an A market of like West Hollywood or Silver Lake or Hollywood and there's some grade, but hillside where you have, let's say, 30 acres and more park or wherever, and it's just tons of, or pa- even Pasadena or wherever, but just tons and tons of grading and retaining and shoring and caissons and pylons, and it's just not worth it. It's not that no one's willing to do it, but you have to ask like hundreds of buyers who's willing to do it. 
Yeah, because it's an, it's an ad, additional cost that the, the, the homeowner or the investor has to burden themselves that's not actually moving the needle in terms of creating this awesome new house. Well, or and the, building high, the, how, the costs are moving targets. Right. So right. they think they only need 60 caissons and then it turns out they need 80 or whatever. <laughs> and it's just, you know, or they're digging and this occurs and it's just, you know, f- developing flatland is hard enough. I mean, there's yep. problems that come up there too. Yep. So hillside and smaller deals, I would probably do less of. Awesome. Awesome. Well, mate, like final question. Where can people reach you to continue the conversation? They want to reach out to you just to pick your brain about the different zoning codes because you, clearly you have a lot of knowledge and you are you you standing on a mountain of, of, of value for other people who are looking to get into the development space here in Los Angeles. Where, 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 do, they, where do they hit you up at? I think maybe the two best uh, places would be um, LinkedIn. So just add me on there and message me. And I respond to everyone. And um, also Instagram, it's LA Land Broker, but with underscores. So it's LA underscore land underscore broker. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Brian, thank you so much for jumping on the show today. Just you gave some cracking advice just about you know different things. And I just want to quickly summarize some of the things that I took away from the show. I think your story is bloody brilliant mate that you you you're at university and you just happen to stumble you know ass over backwards into real estate but it really showed that you don't need to have this huge mba or um you know all these uh things or or experiences that you you know to in order to become a successful investor you just started doing it and you worked really really hard and you got a great work ethic so i think that was the first one i took away the second one is obviously there's a lot of nuances involved with looking at ground up construction here in los angeles or wherever you're looking at ground up constructions in terms of zoning in terms of um entitlement risk and and you know in terms of hillside construction as we just talked about um but you know but but talking to people like yourself who can give some good advice some sound advice about how you go out and do the proper due diligence um and, and the final thing that i think i really took away from the show today was uh the 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 dichotomy between you know trying to balance and how complex is building here in los angeles and with affordable housing versus transport oriented design and and how that affects zoning and you know we, we're not going to you and i not going to be able to solve the issues but hopefully some some smarter people than i us can uh, can bring some sense into this whole development because uh you know as, as la becomes more more expensive to live and there's not as much housing um we, we need to find different ways of, of building those houses and and making sure everyone has a roof over their head uh did did i I leave anything out you know i would just say that like what you were just saying it is extremely difficult to get things done but the housing demand is real people want to be here netflix is here i mean google is here everyone's here and so for those of us that work hard to pull off a new project there's a lot of reward 100 percent agree well mate thank you so much for dropping by enjoy the rest of your week and we'll catch up soon yeah thank you reed Well, there you have it, another cracking episode jam-packed with some awesome investing advice and actionable steps to make things happen. I want to thank you all again for taking some time out of your day to tune in to continue to grow your investing IQ because that's what we're all about on this show. And until next week, take care, be safe, and remember, be investing.